if you haven't already turned to the book of Haggai, page uh, 343, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, page three, oh, excuse me, 743. Did I get the prophet right this morning? I did say Haggai, right? Yes, page 743. As we begin, I want to start our time by having you finish this sentence for me, the kind of brain teaser here. My life would be complete if... Fill in the blank. My life would be awesome if. My life would be fulfilled if. Right? You fill in the blank of whatever comes after that. It's a pretty good sentence to think about. Good question to think about is what would it take for your life to be fulfilled? What would it take for your life to be fulfilled? More time, more money more happiness, more travel. Those tend to be typical responses, and it makes sense. Who wouldn't want more money? Who wouldn't want more disposable income, more savings, more retirement? Whatever it might be, just more of the green stuff, right? Who wouldn't want more time, more free time, more downtime, more me time? Who wouldn't want more experiences, grander vacations, better experiences, longer weekends, live that Facebook, Instagram life that everyone posts about? Who wouldn't want those kinds of things? So the question, I don't know if you've got an answer in your mind, what's it take for you to be fulfilled? Well, the answer to that question can be as unique as the individuals who try to answer it. Haggai teaches us this morning that there are some universal answers to being fulfilled and that only until those questions are answered, those needs of fulfillment are met, you truly can't get satisfaction or be fulfilled in anything else. You see, this this unique yet universal answer to fulfillment is important to understand. After all, one of the most famous songs of the last, since modern contemporary music, made famous by the Rolling Stones, none other, sung by Britney Spears, Otis Redding, even Devo, captures the idea, I can't get no satisfaction. And what he says, I try, I try, I try, I can't get no, right? And that's how it goes. And, and we love the song because it's so, so amazing, right? You sink your teeth into it that we miss the existential agony. What's Mick Jagger saying? I can't get satisfaction. And if Mick Jagger can't get it, and who can have everything, how can anyone else get it? You see, that song strikes a chord that the universal human experience is one of perpetual lack. The Bible says it's not for lack of money or travel or experiences or any other temporal pleasure, but it's a lack of something fundamental of what truly fulfills the human soul. This is what Haggai and the experience of these exiled Jews who are now coming back to their homeland, this is what they teach us. And Haggai will provide three answers to the question, what does it take to be fulfilled at the most fundamental human level? Now, I want to be clear here. There are relative fulfillments. They can have fulfillment, but unless the ultimate issue of what fundamentally fulfills you is satisfied, everything else is the fleeting entertainment. And so Haggai provides us these three answers, and they're all wrapped up in God's character, God's purposes, 
and his promise for his people. Listen carefully as I read the first 11 verses of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house of mine lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Verse 9, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own home. Therefore, the heavens above have withhold the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast on all their labors. Now, I should let you know that as we sit study Haggai this morning, we come to what I call Act 3 of the Minor Prophets. In other words, these are called the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. If you were here last week, Jordan taught you through the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah takes place generations earlier than Haggai. In other words, we have now left the 7th century prophets and now are into the 6th century prophets. The long-awaited doom uh, and of, of exile has taken place in spite of all of God's warnings and pleas to his people to turn. The Assyrians and the Babylonians have come in, wiped out the people of God, and taken them into captivity. Now, if you're a note taker, you might want to write down, as prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 29, God's people would stay in captivity for just 70 years, but then the Lord would bring them back into the land. And so our final three prophets in our series, the Book of the Twelves, Book of the Twelve, are about this post-exile time in the life of God's people, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So to help you keep track of all this, excuse me, I have this slide. So you see here, Act 1 was the 8th century BC. The looming threat was the Assyrians. And we see who the prophets were that God sent to both Israel and Judah. Act 2, we move into the 7th century. And the looming threat there was the Babylonians because the Assyrians had wiped out the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians were, were the threat around the nations. And there are the prophets that God sent to the southern kingdom. And then Act 3 is now, well, the Babylonians wiped out the Assyrians, but then the Persians wiped out the Babylonians. Now they are the predominant power. The Persians allowed them to go home, and those are the prophets, the post-exilic prophets we see there. 
What's amazing about this, and now this is not a lecture on prophecy or history, but I gotta point out to you that in Isaiah 44, 28 to Isaiah 45, 1, let me say that again, Isaiah 44, 28 to Isaiah 45, 1, and Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14, Jeremiah 29, 1 to 14, notice where they are on the grid. Isaiah is in the 8th century BC, Jeremiah 7th century BC. Both of them prophesied the name of the king in the 6th century who was going to release God's people and how long they would stay in captivity. I mean, that's just mind-blowing that hundreds of years before, Isaiah would literally name the king of the Persian Empire who's releasing God's people. And so, that's exactly what happened. Cyrus the king in 538 BC, two years after he came to power, issued a decree that the Jews may return home and rebuild their land. Now, the book of Ezra, by the way, Ezra chapter 1 and 2 records this historical account and names all the main households that returned from exile back to their homeland. Yet, because of political opposition, social, ethnic tensions, and just general, just general struggle, the Jews, faced with the enormity of the task, they gave up. And if you want to read about that, that's in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, to Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. He records them coming home and the struggle and them finally giving up. What's actually amazing is that Ezra records a lot of... Um, the behind the scenes of what Haggai and Zechariah talk about but don't get into. So let me kind of keep your finger in Haggai. Go to the table of contents. Uh, I want to read, I want to instruct you again in this so you understand how to find your place in the Bible. Look at your table of contents. It looks like this. Now you're looking at the Old Testament. You see 39 books and you're tempted to think, wow, that's a lot of material. So Genesis goes from the beginning all the way to the end of Malachi and there's a bunch of new things I got to learn. That's not it at all. When you look at your table of contents, the the biblical story goes from Genesis and it ends basically at the book of Esther, okay? Everything after Esther, you see Job all the way through Malachi, all of those books are simply unpacking what has taken place from the halfway point of 1 Kings to the end of uh, Esther. So in other words, this is not just one long story that goes on and on and on. We talked about this in our very first lesson in this series. God is constantly revisiting certain themes. And so all of these books of the Old Testament from Esther on, so Job to Malachi, unpack all of the dynamics that's taking place from the halfway point of 1 Kings to the end of the book of Esther. It's fascinating that way. We don't have time to get into the history, but this is why it is in fact important and why Haggai so specifically dates his book. Did you notice this is the first minor prophet that tells you the day things happened? Look at it in verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. So we translated that for you. That's basically August 29th, 520 BC. This took place. This is important to note because Cyrus made his declaration in 538 BC. So Haggai gives us the date nearly 18 years after the proclamation and the work still hadn't got done. Doing what God had asked had simply become too hard. And so all these Jews who, you can imagine the excitement being released from captivity to go back home, 
they gave up. Maybe they decided to settle for their, their best life now. Whatever it was, they couldn't fulfill God's plan, so they settled to look for maybe personal fulfillment. And that's what they did. But God called them out on it. That was verses 1 through 11. God called them out on this. But to their great credit, what did the people of Israel do? Remember I told you throughout the minor prophets, we only see three instances where they responded to the preaching of God's word, and here's one of them. Let's finish chapter one. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So roughly, I think it's September 21st. So roughly three weeks after the prophet Haggai began to proclaim it, they responded. And you see that wonderful, clear picture of repentance there. Verse 12, they heard the word of the Lord and they obeyed and they feared or they reverenced the Lord again. So both attitude and action, both action and attitude. They heard the word, they obeyed, and they reverenced in their heart, and they got to the work. This is, this is like, kind of like what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And just like in Haggai 1.14, did you notice it said, you notice the pattern, they obeyed the Lord, they reverenced him in their heart, and then God stirred them up for the work. I think there's a wonderful pattern there. Friends, I wanna back to Haggai, look at verse six. Okay, so we see this response to the word of God, but let's go back to verse six. The Lord's talking to them, consider your ways, end of verse five. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Look at the first part of verse nine. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. You could say that these people were, in one sense, they were just struggling to make ends meet, weren't they? They were, they were, it seems like they were just living hand to mouth. The, the good life was, it was an ever-receding horizon of pleasure that always was out of their grasp. In one sense, we can relate. Life can be discouraging when things do not turn out the way we want them to. The things we hope for don't pan out. You feel like you're barely staying on top of the pile. But look at what the Lord says in verse 5 and verse 7. Twice the same phrase. Consider your ways. Consider the way you are living. That, that thinks of thoughtful meditation, reflection. They began to look for fulfillment 
in their comforts and the temporal things of this life. Now, the picture seems like they're barely struggling, but that's not what he says. He says, you're eating, you're drinking, you're clothing yourself, and it's never enough. It's not that they don't have these things. It's that they're trying to consume them because they think that's what's going to fulfill them. This was too discouraging. I'm going to turn to that. And the Lord says, you're, you're never warm enough. You're never full. You're never satisfied. You got money, you put it in a a bag, it seems like it's got holes in it. It's not that you don't have, it's that the thing you're looking to fulfill you is not working. Friends, this this has a lot of application to a community like South Orange County, doesn't it? Where there is, it's not that we don't have, it's just that it doesn't seem like it ever does enough for us. And we don't consider our ways, so we continue to think that that's what's going to give me fulfillment. I'm going to pursue those things. And the Lord is saying, let me get this straight, because what's the indictment? Look at verse 4. The indictment is, we know that it wasn't that they were struggling, barely surviving. He says, wait a minute, you're living in your paneled houses? You got paneled houses, and mine is in a ruins here? So let me get this straight. You're okay living the posh life for yourself, and it's okay to let my house be rubble. In one sense, this, this could be like a great building campaign sermon, actually, right? But that's not what it's about. What is it about? Look at verse 8. I think verse 8 is very key to this section. The Lord says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Why? That I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. See, the real problem, friends, then and now wasn't necessarily the neglect of a particular building as much as it was indifference to God's glory. That's the problem. The Lord's saying, look, the symbol and seat of my presence is in shambles, and you're living in your paneled houses. It's not that God wanted a nicer, the nicest house on the block. He's saying, you're indifferent to my glory, and I want that to be different. So friends, what's the key to being fulfilled? What's it take to be fulfilled? The Lord tells us a passion for God's glory being passionate for the things he's passionate about. God is telling his people, look, if you're not going to live for what matters, I'm not going to let you live for what doesn't. And I'm going to frustrate you so that you see that. Look at verse 9. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, look at this statement, I blew it away. (laughs) I love how the Lord is, is, is not uncomfortable saying he does harsh things to us, right? He says, you brought all this home, it came to little. Guess why? Because I... I blew it away. Why? Because of my house. The seat and symbol of my glory on earth. You're just like, eh, whatevs. No big deal. Friends, would passion or indifference be the word to describe your attitude about God's glory? More to the point, What word would your children use to describe your attitude to God's glory? Whether they're 5, 15, or 25. What word would your children use to describe your attitude to the glory of God? Passion or indifference? Friends, are there ways you might be treating the glory of God with indifference? Do you assume that God has to forgive you because, well, you're simply entitled to it? You treat his glory with indifference. Do you take for granted the local church? You take his glory for indifference. 
Do you ignore His commands to transform living? You take His glory with indifference. Friends, do you forget His lordship over your life? You take His glory with indifference. And the Lord of the Lord to you would be the same as it was to Haggai. Consider your ways. Now, here's the reality. I don't think anyone in this room is self-consciously going to say, yeah, I, take, I treat God's glory with indifference. Nobody would consciously do that. I know almost all of you. But here's the subtle, tricky thing. Do we unconsciously do this in ways we're not even aware of? Friends, one of the, the dangers of the human condition is we're just simply lights out to the things of God. We're just lights out to who He is. Five times in two chapters, the Lord says to His people, consider what you're doing. Think about it. Are there ways that just maybe unconsciously I am treating His glory with indifference? Do I just assume I can live however I want because, well, after all, He's God and He's got to forgive me? Do I just take for granted His people? And just feel like, eh, I'm going to be there or not, or I'm going to serve or not, I'm going to love them or not, it doesn't matter. Do we ignore His commands as you read His Word that convict us and say, you've got to stop living this way? Do we pick and choose where He's the Lord of our lives? If we do any of those things, willingly, consciously, or unconsciously, we treat His glory with indifference. Friends, don't seek fulfillment by being passionate for your own good, find fulfillment by being passionate for God's glory. We see that so clearly in the people of of, of Haggai's day. And I love verse 14. In response to the people's obedience and reverence toward him, God stirred up their spirits. So let's ask, okay, well then, if I want to be passionate for God's glory, what does that look like? What does it look like? It is the opposite of these things. You don't assume God's forgiveness. You're grateful for it. You're excited about it. Every time you want to, you can learn about God. You want to take advantage of that because it blows your mind that God would save you, would forgive you, would love you. There's gratitude, not assumption. You love the people in the local church. It's not about fitting them in when you can. It is about wanting to be there when the body gathers. I'm going to be there. It's not about watching Grey's Anatomy on Sunday night. I'm going to be at the Lord's Supper service because that's where God's people are going to be at. You don't take them for granted. You love them. You look at His Word, and even if you don't like how it challenges you, you ask your friends to hold you accountable because you've got to be different. You don't pick and choose where his lordship extends. He commands all of your life. That's having a passion for God's glory. So the first key to fulfillment is to be passionate about God's glory. The second, uh, we're going to skip that point. The second is uh, the temple and God's purposes. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, so October 17th at this point, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? 
Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So what happens is the work begins anew, but as they're working, God wants to encourage them because he knows the human propensity to get discouraged even in the midst of some good things. Notice verse three, he calls on the people, says, hey, for those of you who may be able to remember the old temple, how does this fare? How does it feel? Don't be discouraged. Don't be down about this. Now, why would God say that? Well, because relative to the old temple, theirs was somewhat disappointing. So here's some graphics I got. This is Solomon's temple from constructed 959 was in, was in existence till 586 when the Babylonians destroyed it. Look how splendorous that is. I don't know if you can see that, that little guy. That's to scale, that man standing there. Look how big and huge all this is. And then here's what we have is Zerubbabel's temple. Yeah, it's, it's a lot more of a minimalist look, right? A little not, not as grandiose, a little discouraging. So God says, don't think of it as nothing. He says, be strong. Three times he says to them, be strong. Notice verse four, work, because I am with you. And look at verse five, it's really important. Look at what he says in verse five. So he says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What covenant is he talking about? He's talking about Deuteronomy 28. Do you remember the first lesson in this series? We talked about Deuteronomy 28 was the kind of controlling chapter to understand anything that happens in the Minor Prophets. It was the ratification of the covenant that when you obey, I will bless you like crazy. It's gonna be insane. When you walk away from me, I will chastise you and I will bring trials and difficulties to bring you back. The Lord's saying, I'm gonna be faithful to my covenant. Let's get back to the text, verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts. So, so he says, get to work, fear not, I'm still with you. Remember my covenant, I'm gonna bless you for your obedience, verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. You gotta wonder, he must be referring to the, the, the parting of the Red Sea, right? Because he's referring to the Deuteronomy covenant, so he's probably referring to what he did in that great exodus to kind of stoke their enthusiasm again. Verse eight, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And God tells his people, don't despair. Don't despair because this work may look like nothing compared to once was because this temple will be again fantastic, both in, in splendor and material blessing and in, in, and, and in significance, not, I gotta find a better way. It'll be more significant, right? Historically, you know what happened, don't you? Note takers write down Ezra chapter five, verse six to Ezra chapter six, verse 12. This is some of the behind the scenes that Haggai's not mentioning, but Ezra tells us the opposition said, hey, what are you guys doing rebuilding the temple? We're gonna write a letter to the king and stop all this craziness. And so they wrote a letter to Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus. If that name sounds familiar, it should, because that's the king that Queen Esther married, recorded in the book of Esther. So he's in on this as well. Esther doesn't tell us that, but Ezra lets us know. And they say, hey, these guys are rebuilding the temple. There's some decree from years ago. Maybe you should check this out. 
So the king looks at the, the records and the minutes and says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only are you going to not stop them, but you're going to pay for the whole thing too. And so all this money comes from the Persians to build the temple, which was finally completed in 516 B.C. But even more significant, years later, in 20 B.C., Herod, wanting to make a great name for himself, poured a bunch of money and time into the temple and then built it up to look like, whoops, to look like this. But, but it's not... When he says the later glory will be better than the former, it's not because it's going to look better, but because this is the temple that God himself in his incarnation would walk. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God. This was the temple that Jesus in his incarnation presented himself at. So friends, being passionate for God's glory doesn't necessarily mean you will be involved in a great work, at least not in human terms. Honestly, most of us won't be because most of life is is mundane. It's the small things. It's the unobserved, much like the temple that Haggai was encouraging the Israelites to build again. So when we ask the question, answer, ask the question, what's it take to be fulfilled? Haggai's telling us, number one, a passion for God's glory. Number two, work at God's purposes. Friends, do not despise a little work. We live in a society where the big, the new, and the trendy get all the headlines, do not overlook. In fact, do not forget that God often, in unique ways, uses the small, the mundane, and the unobserved. Little acts entrusted to a big God has amazing impact. Dads, you, you, you don't have to read Wayne Grudem's 500-page Christian doctrine to your kids every night but you can tell them about God's promises over dinner throughout their lives. Moms, you, your kids don't have to be perfectly behaved saints. As a matter of fact, remind them when they misbehave, they are sinners. And that's why they have a wonderful Savior. And tell them about the gift of forgiveness, even if it's the 10th, 15th time in the day. The world measures impact by big, grandiose efforts, return on investment, all these kinds of things. God measures his impact on faithfulness. And, and, and we as Christians are not immune to thinking that way. Every time I mix it up with a bunch of pastors, especially at a pastor's conference or something, I get a code question. The question is this, how's the church doing? What that's code for is how many people go to your church, right? And I know that thing, I know what they're asking. And you know what I tell them? I tell them that things are going amazing. And the, I, know, I, I, I know what's going on because then they ask me, oh, how many services are you running? I say, Think, things are going amazing because I've got people, they're like, they're learning and they're counseling one another from God's word to bring hope and help into other people's struggles. I have people who are actually getting and inconveniencing their lives, involving themselves and in helping fighting for the purity of other people's marriages at the church I pastor. 
That's great. I've got people who are, a lot of people, silently, quietly getting involved in foster care, moving towards adoption. I have people who are now CASA, right, court-appointed special advocates for, for children in the foster system, standing up for their rights quietly. We've got people at our church who regularly go into prisons teaching the gospel. We got people in our church writing letters to prisoners, telling them about Jesus Christ. And the great thing is, this not, there's not a single program in our church that does any of this. They're just people in our church bearing fruit of what it means to be a Christian. It's not, we don't got big like stuff. It's just little things, little faithfulness entrusted to a big God happening over and over again. Friends, whatever the work that God has placed before you, be strong in it. Do not look for your fulfillment in doing something amazing or exciting all the time. That's as momentary as as an Instagram post, you know that. Work for God's purposes in your life, whatever they might be, big or small, observed or unobserved. Work for His purposes. Be strong. Number three, the heart and God's promises. Let's look at the last section of this book, verse 10, uh, verse 10 to 19. On the 24th day of the month, of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, so this is December 18th, um, the, uh, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, thus says the Lord of hosts. Right, so here's an interesting question. So God's asking them a question about how contagious is holiness, basically. That, that's the question that's driving this. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Well, the priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day forward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine, to the vat, to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So God's wrapping up his message here and wants to impress an important point. Holiness is not a communicable thing. In other words, it's not contagious, but we see impurity, uncleanliness, sinfulness obviously is. Holiness the kind that which Hebrews 12, 14 says, without which none of us will see God, is not something you attain, you obtain by merely observing external behaviors and rituals and traditions because the nature of holiness doesn't work that way. Holiness, the word chavod, it, it, it literally means way or glory, it's tied into to glory, but it means to be set apart. It's, it's you are set apart for the things of God because you want to be, not because you have to be. And where this shows 
most clearly as an obedience to his commands, not in observing religious, religiosity or ritual. Notice verse 18, the, the point the Lord makes. Since the day you laid the foundation. In other words, going back to chapter 1, verse 12. Since the day you obeyed my voice, and now I will bless you. Since the day you decided to obey, I'm going to bless you, right? Jesus said something very similar. John 14, 15, if you love me, you what? You keep my commandments. Friends, fulfillment will never come from Christianity as mere religious observance because that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a transformed heart in grateful response to what God has done through his promised king. That's what the Old Testament promises. That's what the New Testament reveals. And just in the section we read here of Haggai 2, do you notice twice that, that, that word, consider. So verse 15, look at it. He says, consider your errors from the past and the impact that had on you, the way you just treated my glory with indifference, the way you weren't at the work. Consider how did life fare for you? It didn't go well. And then secondly, in verse 18, consider, but since you responded when I sent my prophet and you responded to his word and you reverenced my glory in your heart, going back to chapter 1, verse 12, and you pursued my work, chapter 2, verse 4, blessings are going to flow. And he says, is there any fruit growing? Is, is there, do you see any evidence of a great bumper crop? No, but I'm going to bless you. Watch out. See, friends, God's blessings by the way, are, are always tied to his promises because now he's going to shift to the how this will be possible. I, I guess I'm, I'm, there, is, there is a biblical principle here. I'm running out of time, so I'm trying to cram all this in. There's a biblical principle that the blessings flow from obedience. That's just the way it goes. Blessings flow from obedience. And blessings from God are always tied to his promises. Look at verse 20 to 23. Now God will talk about how many of these blessings will be possible, which um, at, at first glance is very obscure to us, but very clear to them. But its final fulfillment is very clear to us, but very obscure to them. Let me explain. First, let me read it. So verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So we're still on December 18th. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying... I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horse and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Verse 23, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So why it's obscure to us is because this is ancient history and we don't know how, the role of Zerubbabel, but it was very clear to them. Let me explain it. You see, this man Zerubbabel is in the direct line of King David the king. And God is saying, I will make you my signet ring. It's a sign of kingly authority and kingly rule. This is important because Zerubbabel's grandfather, uh, I believe it was Jeconiah, the last king of, of Judah. The Lord told him, I am taking you off as my signet ring and I am casting you down. And so the great fear of the Jews, that was my wedding band, right? Yeah, so I just, I, I, I should have used this as one of my thumb, my signet ring, and I cast you down. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get it after service on that one. Um, the, the, the Jews feared 
we are now in exile. We have lost the territory. We're not in God's place. The temple, God's seat of glory and presence is no more. And the Davidic dynasty has been wiped out. All of God's promises to us have been lost. And here, at the close of the Old Testament, the Lord says, Zerubbabel, I am making you my signet ring. My authority, my kingly authority, my presence is with you. What that meant was, oh my gosh, Zerubbabel, he's a descendant of David. God is again renewing the Davidic dynasty. We're back in the land, we're building the temple, and we have the king again. And they were stoked. That's what verses 20 to 23 would have meant, would have signified for them. What it signifies to us in light of the New Testament is that God's plan to bring about our ultimate redemption, the ultimate turn of fate, the ultimate form of blessing, our ultimate fulfillment, not just temporally and materially, but eternally and spiritually as well, is accomplished by God's promise to bring about a king that will change our hearts, a king that will actually put holiness into us. Because this is the promise of the new covenant. That's the ultimate hope of the Davidic dynasty. In the exile, before the exile, the prophets wrote this, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So Deuteronomy 28, that one's not working out. Making a new one with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Ezekiel 36, 26, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, we will be passionate for his glory. We will work for his purposes because his promises will change us. So let's ask the question one more time. What's it take to be fulfilled? What does Haggai tell us? Passion for God's glory, work for God's purposes, and the accomplishment of God's promises. If this is what Haggai is teaching, then true fulfillment begins actually with the accomplishment of God's promises in Christ that will change our hearts and make us passionate for his glory and make us willing to do his work. This is what verse 20 to 23 means. This is what I mean by by it's clear to us, but obscure to them. Because the Jews only read this in terms of, of King David, of political freedom and material blessing. But the New Testament tells us that this is related to Jesus Christ, God's larger plan of humanity. You know that because if you look at Matthew 1 and Luke 3, the genealogies of Jesus, guess who's in that line? Zerubbabel, a direct ancestor of Jesus himself. Friends, our true and ultimate fulfillment is completely dependent upon the God's promises being accomplished in Christ. It's only when we embrace that truth that you actually can be passionate for his glory and willing to do his work. It doesn't work the other way around. Let me close with this. Unless until you see Christ as the doorway to all fulfillment, you, like Mick Jagger, Britney Spears, Otis Redding, Devo, you will just not find any satisfaction.
It's not because there are no pleasures or joys in this world, right? There are, and by God's good grace, we enjoy many of them. It's that none of them were intended to fulfill you truly, and it's only until you find ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the promised one of God, then can you find lasting fulfillment in anything else. Put first things first. Don't get the cart before the horse. Find the ultimate fulfillment if you hope to find fulfillment anywhere else. So one last time, we ask the question, what's it take to be fulfilled? Haggai tells us, Jesus Christ, the promised one of God that gives you a new heart, passionate for God's glory, willing to work for God's purposes. Friends, is that what you are looking for your fulfillment in? Is Jesus Christ, God's glory, what God is about in this world, is that what you're seeking your fulfillment in? To the degree you can say yes, then you're stoked. To the degree that's not where you're looking for ultimate fulfillment, I plead with you, you reconsider your ways. Literally, God is showing us a, a, a slice of what it might be like if South Orange County were back there. We can't fill ourselves up with things, right? We weren't made for those things, only for the glory of God. That's the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your glory, your kindness, your mercy, your patience, your forgiveness, your compassion, your long-sufferingness. We thank you for your holiness, your justice. We thank you for your wrath. Father, we thank you for who you are. We don't thank you for the things you do for us. You have already done more than we could possibly ever ask or hope for. We just need to come to realize that. Lord, open our, our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear the great love of God towards us, that our lives may be consumed with a passion for your glory, focused on your purposes and grateful for your promises. And we thank you for all this in Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.